Please turn with me to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, we will be looking at this chapter in its entirety as Paul makes another defense concerning the charges brought against him in Jerusalem. And so today he's in Caesarea making a defense. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, again we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear it, to not be those who take your word and simply twist it to our own liking so that it makes us look like our own Redeemer, but so that we see our sin and so that we see that we are convicted by our sin, that we would turn to you as our Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. As I was preparing for this passage this week in Acts 24, I read a story about a man whose life began as a slave. And his brother, this was in Roman times, his brother was a name by the name of Pallas, made friends with the emperor's son, and the emperor's son name was named Claudius. The man was freed Pallas was freed, or this man and Pallas were freed when Claudius became emperor because of his connections through his brother. And he quickly rose through the ranks, eventually winning a spot of governor of a province. When he was governor of this province, he was known for his lavish lifestyle and his exceptional cruelty. The more cruel he became, the more people revolted against him. And the more cruel he became, a violent and vicious cycle. He was married three times in his life. The second wife that he had, he convinced her to leave her husband and to come with him instead. She was later killed along with all of her children in the Mount Vesuvius eruption. So very famous way to die there. But he lived and he married again and only to be ousted as governor of the province that he was at because of his corruption and cruelty, ousted by Nero, no less, who was no picture of morality at all, and from all indication lived the rest of his life in obscurity, much like it began. The person I'm talking about, of course, is the man in this story today, Felix, a character who is the very center of our text today, at least um, he's the one that is the judge of the trial that we're going to be looking at. He is this the presiding judge over the case between the Jewish Sanhedrin and Paul the Apostle, who has been charged with all sorts of crimes that he did not commit. In our text today, Luke, the author, interestingly gives a p- equal position to all three accounts, the Jewish accusations against Paul, then Paul's defense, and then Felix's response. To all of that. I think there's a lot to learn, of course, from the first two parts, but Felix's response is where I'm going to draw the majority of our application for today. Felix, like all of us, had a choice to consider, and that is how we all, in one way or another, respond to Christ. It isn't to say that our choice alone is that what causes us to be saved or our changes our eternal destiny. Of course, we know that truth, but there, that is to say, of course, that there, once we've heard the gospel, 
each and every one of us. And once we've been told the truth about Jesus Christ, we do have a choice. How will we respond to that? That response just isn't a Sunday thing that we come together today and talk about and decide. But it's an eternal thing. And as we look at our text today, I want to break it into those three sections. The accusations of the Jews, the defense of Paul, and then the decision of Felix. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Acts chapter 24 in its entirety. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in every where we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have clear conscience toward both God and man." Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. When I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, was, uh, tribune, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his, or that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about, the, about faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and about the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. 
So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a bit of review to catch us back up. I think the text does a pretty good job with that, but just throwing in some other things. Paul finished his third missionary journey, and part of the end of his missionary journey, the the goal of part of that was to travel around to several of the churches in Greece and Asia Minor and collect an offering for the Jerusalem church. And you kind of saw hints of this as we went through the earlier chapters. They were collecting money, and he was going to send that offering to the Jerusalem church For whatever reason, the Jerusalem church needed funds, and they were collecting from these new churches to do that. He gathered this offering, and he came back to Jerusalem. Upon entering, it was suggested that he take part in a Jewish purification ceremony to show the Jewish Christians that he had not completely abandoned his Jewishness, though he was still holding to Christ Jesus. He did this along with few others, and in the middle of this purification ceremony, he was attacked by a mob. And were it not for the Roman authorities, Paul probably would have been killed on that day, but the authorities saved him. And a few failed trials and attempts on his life, Paul was transferred to Caesarea under the protection of this man that we read about today, Felix. And the Jewish elders were instructed to come to Caesarea if they wished to pursue charges against Paul, and they did. And that's where we're at in our text today. Rome... Again, just to make sure we understand how Rome kind of operated, they had many, many provinces throughout the world. Just look up, you know, Roman Empire at the turn of that A.D. B.C. mark, and you can see they were all over the place. And their general rule was to allow these provinces to continue in their own traditions, just like we see here with the Jewish people continuing their own tradition and their religion, as long as they bowed the knee to Roman rule and worshipped Caesar as well as their other things. And we know that Christianity had a problem with this. So did Judaism. They both had problems with this, and they opposed the worship of Caesar, which would later bring down the Roman hammer upon both of them. Judaism basically wiped out, and Christianity far from wiped out, actually thrived in that time. But for now, in our text today... Rome is trying to settle this dispute as peacefully as possible between two Jewish people. That's kind of how they're looking at it. And so Felix, we'll see, is having trouble making a decision, namely because he's a corrupt man. And that brings us to the first point, the accusations of the Jews. So Ananias, the high priest, came to Caesarea with several others. We read about Ananias earlier in another chapter and they bring with them this man, Tertullus, who was basically kind of like a lawyer. Uh, maybe your uh, text calls him an orator. Uh, he was summoned there to basically bring the charges against Paul. He was kind of, he may have been uh, Jewish even or Hellenistic Jew, not sure. But he was there as kind of the representative council. And after some pleasantries, it's funny that Tertullus says he wants to be brief, but spends half his time 
making sure Felix feels really warm and cuddly inside. Um, they get to the crux of their accusations. Look with me at starting at verse 5. For we, speaking of the Jews, the elders, have found this man, Paul, a plague. Interesting accusation against Paul, who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything for which we accuse him. So, they bring these charges against him. And let's just look at these charges that they bring against him. They say that Paul stirs up riots. Which, if you think about the Roman government, and Paul has only ever been in Roman territory since he's been traveling around, Rome, of course, would have saw this as a crime. Again, Rome wants to... to Keep the peace. I mean, just like any country, if we had a person running around our country starting riots in cities, we would want to get rid of them too. And so Rome would see this as a crime against the peace, therefore really a crime against the emperor himself. And so, of course, that's why the Jews are making this charge against Paul. But they also said that he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes basically accusing him of leading a heretical group. They kind of make up this group, and that would have been a crime against Jewish law. And so they're saying not only has Paul broke Roman law, he has broke Jewish law, and then they say that he profaned the temple. But we seized him. I love that they really hike up their own morality there, but we grabbed him before he was able to do that. He profaned the temple, which would have been a charge against God himself. Because the temple was where he, God, was with his people and where they worshipped him. And so the Jews have some pretty heavy accusations against Paul, against the government, against the Jewish nation, against God himself. Now we've looked before and we've seen that Paul wasn't guilty of any of these, of course. Um, He was actually trying to lay as low as possible when he went into Jerusalem, even though he knew that he was going to be found out. And they found him, and they caused the problems. So again, we have a case of bad men bringing charges against relatively innocent men. Paul had committed none of the crimes. So let's make sure why they were doing it, that we understand what's going on here. It isn't because they hate the man. Sure, they probably do think they hate Paul, but ultimately they hate the God that he serves. As you know, this past week, the festivities and the funeral and memorial surrounding George Bush Sr. and his death, and a lot of the country has come together to mourn this man. While he was in office, George Bush Sr., I remember this. I was fairly young, but I do remember him being in office. He was regularly hounded by the press the press and the political left, and he was considered afraid to take action and accused of riding Reagan's success and not doing anything worthwhile on his own in his time in office, only starting problems and never really fixing anything. Yet when he died, he was lauded as a hero, as courageous, as a good husband, a good father, a dedicated patriot who should be regarded in the highest. Why the switch? Because now that he's not president, they don't have to hate him anymore. 
They don't have to dislike him anymore because he doesn't represent the thing that they hate the most, which is just the other side of the political spectrum. They no longer, he's no longer a threat, so the truth can actually be told about him. That's it. Why doesn't the unbeliever want to speak the truth about God? Because the truth is an absolute threat to him or her, the unbeliever. It's a threat to their existence. To speak to the truth about them is to let it be known that where they stand is not in a good place before God. Unlike George Bush Sr., God's authority never ceases. And he is always on the throne. So opposition then must always hate him and admit or admit that he's right. And those are the only two options, brothers and sisters. There is no in-between to continue to hate and lie about God or to admit that he's right and bow the knee in service to him. And it's the same with us. The unbeliever will continue to hate Christians not because we're Christian, but because of Christ himself. Christ makes claims that they cannot get around So they choose to hate him and his followers instead. For the Jew, in those days, Christ represented the completion of the law, the institution of a new covenant, which desired all of God's people, all of them, even the Gentiles, to be saved. So they hated Jesus. They hated his followers because they're Jews. Had nothing to do with God. Had to do with their Jewishness. And they hated it. For the unbeliever today, it's very much the same thing. Christ represents authority and truth. Two things that they, the unbeliever, refuse to acknowledge. It doesn't matter what culture, it doesn't matter what background. Ultimately, the unbeliever hates God because he is an absolute authority. and He represents absolute truth and they want neither one of those things. As we seek to minister to the lost... We have to remember this truth, brothers and sisters. Remember that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that hatred, we continue and must preach Christ. It would be really easy to kind of weave around the hard parts in order to kind of make it more palatable for the unbeliever, would it not? We really only have to change just a few things. For instance, not say any of the things I just said. It would be a lot more palatable, but we would not be faithful. So we continue to preach Christ. We show Christ also through our actions. We defend Christ through our words. Though Christ is an enemy to the sinner, he also is their only hope. So we continue to offer him, knowing that there are many out there who will one day call him to themselves or him them to himself and that brings me to the next point the defense of Paul Paul carefully dismisses each of the charges that are against him look at verse 11 he says you can verify that it is no not more than 12 days since I went to worship in Jerusalem he was there to worship in Jerusalem when they found him they started beating him up 
It wasn't that he was going out looking for them at all. He was trying to lay low. He wasn't out, what do they say? He wasn't being a plague, stirring up riots. He wasn't this ringleader. He wasn't trying to do any of those things. He was just coming to town to bring an offering. Verse 14, Paul says, But at this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship God from our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So not only was he a follower, but he believed everything written in the scriptures. And so he was trying to find a common ground between him and the Jews. He wouldn't profane the temple. He wouldn't do the things against Judaism that he said. And so in verse 15, he draws this commonality. Having a hope in God, which these men... The elders, the scribes there, themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Again, he's drawing a commonality between the Jews and himself, the belief and the hope in the resurrection. Now remember, the Sadducees, of course, didn't see this, so Ananias was probably uh, turning his head a little bit. But the other elders that were there, the scribes that were there, they would have, yes, they can't deny this fact. And verse 21, this is what we read. This is actually why he's on trial. Verse 21, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. That was the problem because it all has to do with Jesus. That is the resurrection. I recently read a post from a sincere Christian who uh, suggested that we shouldn't separate from the Jews today because we basically worship the same God. And they were really upset with the thought that there would be any sort of distinction between Jews and Christians, that we shouldn't let, in their words, a minor doctrinal issue separate us. Instead, we should embrace unity Because Jesus Christ is a minor doctrinal issue. Paul loved the Jews. Just read his letters to them. Just read his letters. Just read Romans. He has two whole chapters or three whole chapters about how much he loves the Jews. And how much he loved the people of God. But it was because of his love for the Jewish people that he was so harsh with them concerning the gospel. Because to reject Jesus Christ is to reject the very heart and soul of the Old Testament itself, which they claimed to hold up and believe. The twelve apostles, along with Paul, all knew this, and they all preached this truth, that all the laws and the prophets, all the stories about David and all of his poems... All the blessings and the cursings and the prophets and all the redemptive history that you can read in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and all of those books, all of those things point forward to the one man, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of his people. Abraham saw his day and was glad. Jacob saw a stairway into heaven. And Jesus said, I am that stairway. Moses struck the rock from which life-giving water came. And Paul tells us that the rock was Christ from whom living water flows. To reject Jesus isn't to disagree on a minor 
doctrinal issue. To reject Jesus is to reject the God of the Bible. The same thing the Jews have been doing since the beginning. And it's the same thing that every person ever born does. Let's not just make this a Jewish thing. Since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, every single one of us rejected Jesus. Were it not for his mercy, we would still continue to do so. So Paul puts the question to them, essentially. What do you say about the resurrection? Are you still waiting for a hope in someplace else? Or do you trust Jesus? And that brings me to the last point, the decision of Felix. So Felix hears both sides of the argument. They come in, the Jews give him their side. Paul gives him their side. And look at verse 22. This is what he says. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, the way being being Christianity, he's going to put them off and says, I will decide. I've heard the truth and I'm going to sit on it a little while. Makes me think that perhaps Felix was somewhat intrigued by what Paul had to say. So later, he comes in with his wife, Drusilla. And this is the one who would later die in the Vesuvius eruption. Drusilla and Felix come together and they listen to Paul. And Paul, what does he do? Well, verse 24, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Of course, we would expect Paul to do no less. He shared Jesus Christ with them. Notice what else he shared with them. Verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Interesting topics that they spoke about. You kind of get this a little bit. He spoke to him about righteousness. Righteousness, of course, that only Jesus brings. Self-control, of which Felix had very little, if you read history. It could be that Paul pointed out that this was his need for a Savior. The fact that he was so incredibly harsh and sinful in his dealings with the Jewish people. It was time for a reality check. Felix, you need some self-control. Your lack of self-control causes you to need a Savior. And then the coming judgment. Any gospel conversation that doesn't go into this part of the conversation isn't a gospel conversation at all. The judgment of Jesus Christ is coming. When he returns, he will take all his own, as we read from 1 Thessalonians this morning, and he will destroy the rest. It's not going to be a party. It's going to be a reckoning. So Paul lays out the plain gospel before him. He needs a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. And Felix is alarmed. That's a good response to the gospel. Fear. But then he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you he sent for him more and more as you continue to read there at the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by paul so he sent for him often and conversed with him and you know that paul was unrelenting in his gospel presentation to felix so he continued more and more to hear the gospel 
piling up more and more of his own personal responsibility to accept the claims of Jesus Christ. And but in verse 27, we, lead, we read that he was later succeeded and Paul was left in prison for two years because, you know, Felix never got any money and he was going to use Paul as a bribery chip, something to do a favor for the Jews. So what did Felix do with Jesus? He waited. When I was at Murray State at a party one time, I shared the gospel with someone. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation. We, I don't even remember what the conversation started on, but we were sitting at the, on the steps at a fraternity house, and I shared the gospel with this guy. We were probably both 20, 21. And I asked him, point blank, what are you going to do about Jesus at the end of the conversation? There's no middle ground. He had been hemming and hawing the entire conversation. And finally, I got him to say, I want to wait till I'm older. I still want to have fun, was his exact words. Because, you know, Christians don't have fun. I still want to have fun when I'm older, when I have kids, you know, more settled were his words. That's when I'm going to be religious. That's when I'll consider Jesus Christ. Sad thing, recently I saw him. He has kids. He was drunk at a softball game yelling obscenities at the teenage umpires. Now, I have no idea what he's done with Jesus in reality, but I can only guess what he's done. I still regret not going up to him that day at the softball game. I don't know how fruitful the conversation would have been. But no matter, he knows the truth. One day he will face the one that's been, that he's been waiting to settle on, and it won't be pretty. What are you going to do with Jesus, brothers and sisters, people today? What are you going to do with Jesus? For the Christians, we're not off the hook here by any means. We've been called to live like Christ. Paul says in verse 16, does he not? So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Are we doing that? Are we taking pains to live with a clear conscience? Are we simply cashing in Jesus like someone would cash in an insurance check? Now we can just live however we want. Now that we have some sort of, you know, freedom to do so. Our works will prove our faith, brothers and sisters. Let us be ones who are ever working out our faith in our actions, in our lives. Specifically for you kids here today, those of you who live in Christian homes, I want you to hear this. Whether you know you're a Christian or not, when do you plan on getting serious about your faith? Well, I just want to wait till I'm an adult, you know, to take Jesus serious. Or wait till I get to college when other people are doing that, and that's when it's easier. Or I don't really know or understand any of this stuff, so I'm just going to play dumb little games and worry about insignificant little things instead. Do you hear me say, or so don't hear me say, that you have to be some sort of studied theologian to be serious about your faith? But let's make sure that we are giving every effort to make our calling and election sure. That's even for you little guys. We have to do this. If your faith is an every Sunday thing, then it's time for you to get serious about your faith in the Lord. 
And for you unbelievers, are you going to wait? Are you going to wait for the Savior? Are you waiting for your need of the Savior to be greater, to fill it? Are you waiting for the right time, like my friend in college still waits? Tomorrow never gets here, ever. It's always the next day. As soon as the next day, or as soon that next day becomes 20 years, you're still looking for hope in nothing. Come to Jesus. He is the only hope for salvation. So in conclusion, for all of us, if you have questions about what to do with your faith, you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for 40 years, what do I do with my faith now? If you're struggling with your faith, a very young faith, what do I do now? If you have questions and fears about the claims of Scripture about Jesus Christ, come, talk to me, talk to Andy, talk to any one of us. We'd love to talk to you. It's likely that I've had those same questions or maybe even still currently have them. And so we can have a conversation. We're all struggling together. That's the walk that we currently have together. But we must consider our Lord. He is not someone to wait on. What we do with Him is of eternal importance. Let us be a people who live above above reproach, brothers and sisters in Christ. Continue to share our faith in Jesus Christ with the lost world. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we, even in You, have oftentimes waited. And so, Lord, help us to be people who are daily making our calling and election sure to know to take great pains to live with a clear conscience before God and man. And Lord Jesus, if there are any here who do not know you, that you would that you would cause them to come to know you, that you would cause them to call upon your name, to ask the difficult questions they've been refusing to ask. We pray this in your name. Amen.